0: Thanks for listening to this word in your ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions, ad free priority booking for our live events and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash word in your ear for more details.
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care.
2: You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
1: Okay, well, welcome to um, Another Word in Your Ear. Now, you'll know tonight's guest, of course, as the renowned national radio and observer film critic. But as his latest book um, confirms, there was a stage in his life when he pursued another career career, um, entirely. And it's rare to find someone um, writing with such genuine delight... About the abject and laughable failure of the (laughs) bands (laughs) that they were in. And among those, I have to tell you, it was The Spark Plugs, Mm -hmm. The Tigers, The Vibrogues, The Basics, Fifth Incident Russians Eat Bambi, The Mighty Jungle Beasts, and of course, Herpes 100. Mm -hmm. So please help us commiserate with Mark Kermode. Which is very unkind of me, actually, Mark, because no, after that, of course, you had two groups who did quite well, but we'll get on to those later. Yeah, but, but abject failure yeah, yes, the, the, is, 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 is a major theme failure. for this excellent book. But the first question we, we tend to ask anybody, actually, is just about where they grew up. You were born in 1963, yes. in, and you grew up, I think, in Barnet, in, in Hertfordshire?
2: Yeah, we sort of worked our way up the, the top end of the northern line. So originally, my train station was Finchley Central, and then we went up towards High Barnet, up Totteridge Way. So that was it. It was I was the, the, the top end of the of the Northern Line, and I always remember when I when I moved away from London. And people used to say, "Oh, you know, it must be so difficult traveling into London." Go no, traveling into London from High Barnet is really difficult. If you're going to be on a train that long, you might as well end up outside of London. That yes, was true. Uh, so yeah, so that was
1: that was my stomping ground. But what what music do you remember? Um, uh, you know, growing up uh, when you were when you were a kid, and also what was it played on? Yeah, it's so so well, almost a, a traditional sort of question. Okay, on. so my
2: my dad was a, a, a real record enthusiast. And he, he was into Jelly Roll Morton, and uh, so he was into sort of old jazz. And he used to listen to Jazz Record Request, and he had a, a hi fi, and it was very specifically a hi fi. He had a, a, a like a, a Shaw arm with an, a, with an SME oh, really? cartridge or something, and it was you weren't allowed to touch it. And it had all you know counterbalances, so he yeah, has to put the thing down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and his turntable played 16, 40, 16, 33, 45, and 78, and he had a collection of, of every single thing. Of those. And then the first record player that I was allowed to use, we got a little dance set. It was like an orange dance set that the, the lid closed down in it and it had the spindle in the With middle. The you could put a bunch of singles yeah. on it. And the first, as far as I remember, the first record I can remember buying, I mean, after like Magic Roundabout Records and, you know, Two Little Boys and that kind of thing, was Jealous Mind by Alvin Stardust. And then Sugar Baby Love, which was the, the, the record that... High the, quality. The, yeah, the record, Sugar Baby Love was the thing. I remember seeing it on Top of the Pops and just being, like, pinned to the sofa with astonishment. <laughs> and years later... No, I, I obsessed about Sugar Baby Love for ages because that voice is so incredible. And then, of course, you discover that it's not the guy singing that actually the guy singing is a guy called Paul Da Vinci and years, years later after I'd obsessed about Sugar Baby Love um, I was on a Radio 5 show and uh, we were going to do some musical item, and I, men- I mentioned, you know, it's not Alan Williams singing that, it's Paul Da Vinci. And so we said, oh, I know Paul Da Vinci. And I said, is there any possibility you could get him on the show and I'll get the bottlers on and we'll play Sugar Baby Love in a skiffle version, and he, because that's what I play, and he can sing it. And they went, yeah, great. And they brought Paul Da Vinci in, and we did live on Radio 5, Paul Da Vinci doing that incredible you know, falsetto from Sugar Baby which Sugar Baby Love originally was written as a demo for Shiwadiwadi, which is why all those back go bop Shiwaddy, bop shi wadi and it was Paul da Vinci who said, "You need to take that." I know this is more information than you require.
1: No, this. Is, <laughs> I, I was just thinking, you know, we're October. ten minutes in, but we have at least done "Sugar Sorry. Baby Love," yeah. so that's, yeah. that's 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 a good thing. Yeah. But, carry yeah. Yeah.
2: But, but I I I love that record. I've wanted for ages to make a documentary about the making of it because it's such a strange story. Anyway, so that was that was what, and I, the first album. I remember buying was Where It's At which was the, the punningly entitled Rubettes album, Where W-E-A-R, Where It's Hat where it's at, it's yeah, clever stuff. Exactly. No, it is. And uh, and of course, uh, so Rubettes. I know. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, actually, I've got all the Rubettes albums. I carried on with them, you know, the whole changing lineups and all the rest of it. I've got I've got all of them on original vinyl, and I can still. T- They'll be thrilled. They, yeah, one. they they yeah. they were really big in France for a long time. Yeah. You know, I know uh, whether Ooh La La and all that love that was really big. And uh, and then of course the Great Gatsby was in cinemas. That's why the Rubettes dressed like they did. Because because of, because of Robert Redford in The Great Gatsby. Oh, the hats! yeah, yeah, yeah
1: that's where the hats. They so were Gatsby hats. So but it's that's interesting that you, you talk about getting into a lot of music via, via the movies, which yeah. is a really and, and as it would be for, uh, in your case, you know, and, yeah. you know, you watched Jailhouse Rock and you watched yeah. uh, Slade in Flame. Slade in Flame was the was and the, Tommy by the Who, I think. It's you tell know. us about
0: Slade in Flame because I have to confess I've never seen it, and, you, th- you, and that's a terrible.
1: <laughs> somebody in the audience has just passed no, that's out. Great. <laughs> But the shame of never seeing Slade but in Flame. here's Fl- the thing.
2: Thank you for making that noise, because yeah. for a long time, um, when Slade and Flame came out, it wasn't a hit, because um, it's this very gritty... I mean, I think it's the Citizen Kane of British pop movies, which, I've, <laughs> which I have said at great length in many publications. And um, when it first came out, it's very gritty, and it's about this, you know, this band, this northern band, who are basically bought up by a London investment uh, agency... And sold to the public like fish fingers. And very quickly, it all falls apart. At the beginning, they're, they're really having fun, and then they turn into a product, and then it all falls apart, and they all hate each other, and it ends up with the group splitting up the end. And Slade fans didn't want that. They they wanted something like I mean the other sort of comparable British movies around that time were things like Never Too Young to Rock, which was you know the Rubettes were in that and those kind of bands. And Slade in Flame is really gritty and really tough and really brilliant. And I saw it in the cinema. I saw it at the Barnet Odeon, oh, yes. um, which I was you know my sort of local haunt. And I. Was I was just fell in love with it. I was absolutely obsessed by it, and I went. I bought the soundtrack album, which has got "How Does It Feel" on it, which is where the name of the book comes from, because I remember sitting there watching the film, listening to that beautiful piano line. And I do think that Slade were fantastic songwriters. They were the, the, brilliant. The, they were
0: absolutely brilliant. So the, the, the title of the book doesn't come from Bob Dylan. No, like no, Raleigh it's no, stand. no, it's absolutely it comes slayed, from Slade in Slade in Flame. Game. Yeah, because yeah. the whole point about the film was it was like saying.
2: Um, this, you know, this is this is the reality behind the dream of pop stardom, and it was Richard Longkine. He's got a proper director, and I remember watching it and just thinking, I want to live in that movie. That's the, that's the life I want to have. Those arguments backstage. I want to have the moment when the whole band falls apart because Noddy Holder can't get on with it. That was what I wanted to to, to be. And so, when I built my electric guitar. Which I, did, I didn't, I couldn't have, I didn't have money to buy an electric guitar, so I decided to build one in practical design in in school, and it took two years. And as you know, in pop music, two years is a really long time. <laughs> and when I st- when I started building it, it was this v, it was this shape, it was like a flying V shape, like Dave Hill out of Slade would have played. By the time I'd finished it, glam rock had gone and everything was punk, and I had this guitar that looked like it was from a former era, also looked like it was made out of you know, string and glue, which it was, but that was, you know, that was it. I was basically trying
1: to be Dave Hill in Slade in Flame. Thank God the Beatles didn't try and build their own guitars. Yeah, no, course no, well, like Two they, years late. But
2: they started, <laughs> but they started as a skiffle band, so actually they it's kind so, of yeah. did build their own. You know, so yeah, it, it all comes back to DI. I mean, that's the, the the essence of it for me was. You know how hard can it be? You you you, you sort of look at musical instruments and you think, well, they must be really, really impossible and difficult, and you can break them. But actually, yeah, you can break most of them. But they they are just string and glue and wood. And I I still think to this day, building an electric guitar from scratch at school was the thing that made me think, OK, I'm not scared of any musical instrument. I can't play any musical instrument well. I can play lots of musical instruments quite badly because I'm not frightened of them. Because, you know, I built a guitar. I go, oh, that's all it is. It's like a table but with strings. Can you remember
0: the first... Yeah. LAUGHTER
2: when was the first time you were on stage? Can you remember? Remember the first time I was on stage. I remember the first time the first time we did a gig, but that wasn't on stage. It was in somebody's front room, and uh, this was this was an early version of the Spark plugs, and we played a version of Pinball Wizard because I had learned to play the piano part, um, that, you know, from the Elton John cover from the movie. And but what I did was because it was literally in the front room, and there was like four people in the room. I decided that to add an air of theatricality. We, we'd start with the curtains drawn, and I go. Then it goes da-dam, at which point somebody would reach out and turn on a table lamp. da <laughs> <laughs> And, and I thought that everyone in the room would go, wow! But in fact, they didn't notice. And I was so <laughs> cross that I made them stop and start again and pay attention to the table lamp being turned on. So I think the first time I was on stage properly was in the sixth form common room when I was playing with the basics. I think that was the first time I was actually you know, on a stage looking out that way and the audience looking that way in a PA system between us and, and them. And
1: what feeling did that give you? Because you, know, you, you go through uh, all manner of different groups. And ups and downs, yeah. and all the kind of uh, the drama of. Uh, at one point, you're booted out of a group. I can't remember which one it is now. And uh, and you asked why, and they said they just didn't like you. Yeah, yeah that's you it, know, so
2: they that was the, that was think... the They said they said it's not that we don't think you're a good guitarist. You are. We just don't like you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, which I thought was you know impressively honest. I mean, it felt... it felt but, but, but you must have felt something yeah, fantastic. How did that
0: feel?
1: Yeah,
2: what, getting thrown out? No, being told that they didn't like you. Well, at least they weren't criticising my guitar playing. So, you know, that was a kind of positive. I mean, the thing is... I, I I loved being in bands. I loved that thing of being on stage. I mean, that again, part of the thing calling it. How does it feel? Was because I was, you know, I was. How would it feel to be a pop star? How would it feel to be on stage with you know fifty thousand watts of power and everything? And and I remember getting on stage in the Sick Form Common Room for that first gig. And there must have been twenty people there. I mean, less people than I hear at the for the recording of the podcast. And I just thought this is like Wembley Stadium. Yeah. And we had a we had a PA like a proper PA that we. I mean, proper. It was small, but it was a proper. I was amply. And I, you know, wow, look at that, I'm amplified. And so you get thrown... I mean, the thing about bands in schools is that they're like... Gangs. I mean, I was never into football. I was never into sport. I never did any kind of um, any of that sort of stuff. So the only sport I ever did was cross country running, which I always consider to be organised running away, and I was very very good at that. But oh yeah, so right. So this photograph. So this is this is the spark plugs. So that's me sitting on the amp, which I'm, I, I presume I'm singing into. That's Richard, and that's Dave Badil playing um, playing a, the strat. A very nice Strat copy guitar, actually. And so we must have been. 13, 14, something like that. Dave says... And I don't remember this being true, but it has this, the ring of truth about it. He says that we threw him out of the band, and the way that we did it was that one day we said, "Oh, we've decided to jack it in," you know, and then the next day we reformed without him. Without him. <laughs> I don't it's been remember done a million that happening, times. but you know, <laughs> that was a very school band kind of thing, and it was like the it was like being in a gang. If you weren't into football, if you weren't very, you know, yeah, that was no, the sure. thing. That's what I was asking the question about. How did you feel when they said they didn't like you? Because it, it was heartbreaking. It was absolutely heartbreaking, but it was. It was heartbreak followed immediately by the greatest ecstasy because I got thrown out of them and then I. I was I remember walking through the school corridor with my silly guitar thinking I've been thrown out of this band because they don't like me and then I saw a, a, a notice pinned to the school notice board which was this guy Simon Booth who is now one of my best friends and has been all my life said that he was forming a band and he and they needed a they needed a guitarist and a singer you know so I I answered the advert and then me and Simon were then best friends so it was you know agony and ecstasy right. but it was real up and real down and then once you once you'd started you, that 's all you did. you spent all your time rehearsing and saving up for instruments and you know working out songs and and, 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 and at that point, we really didn't care whether the audience liked us in fact we act- Wanted to sort of antagonize them because it felt like, oh, that's what you need to do. You need to I remember there's a friend of mine called Andy Hussey, who's now a very, very celebrated academic. But when he was at college, he'd been in a band in Liverpool called The Last Chant, and he told me that his he was really proud of the fact that he was reviewed in the NME, and the NME reviewer said that he had given them a headache. And he thought, that's great, that's what you need to I do. I could retire now. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't until years yeah. later that I realised that playing music for other people's
0: benefit was a good thing. I mean it was we were doing it entirely for ourselves. You see, I think many bands continue doing that all the way <laughs> through their career. I mean, seriously, you know, what a, what a, talk about the equipment and, yeah. and your interest in the equipment because Alex is one of the people involved in Word in Your Ear Is always insist that musicians' main passion in life is equipment. It, it, yeah, it is. I mean, building the guitar was a really big,
2: nerdy thing and then I became obsessed with who had what guitar. So, I mean, in that picture, for example, Rick is playing a Columbus uh, Les Paul, Copy with uh, two pickups, and Dave is playing a, a Columbus Strat copy. In Columbus, there was a lot of if uh, you had the proper guitars, which were Fender Stratocasters and Gibsons, and then you had all these copies which were made by Columbus, Avon, you know, all these sort of cheap bands. And funnily enough, those guitars are now considered to be collectible, but you could buy them secondhand for about 50, 60 quid. And it was always a matter of who had what guitar, always got that, and who had what amplifier, and what kind of leads were you using? And you, they used to get magazines that would review new guitars that you couldn't buy. I imagine it's like people now buying car magazines or, or watching Top Gear and seeing people driving around in cars that they're never going to own, but they like. And so if you take a guitar apart, it, it does become really fascinating, and you do end up having... And I still do this. I mean, the band I'm in now, the Dodge Brothers, who I've been in you know, for ages and ages we will still have really nerdy conversations about, Oh, that's an interesting uh, pickup. You know, what, what, how are you doing that? How have you got that wired up? And I mean, I play double bass now, and every double bassist you meet, there's two questions. Firstly, how do you do your hair? Secondly, what pickup are you using? And that will take... <laughs> in that order. In that yeah, order, yeah. 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 Hair first, pickup
1: second, and then so after that, anything else? Did you find that people, even in early days, uh, bands like that, that people in bands adopt a certain role? Yeah, I mean... there's a certain
0: position? Yeah, were John Lennon Paul McCartney are, uh, of the group? No, I mean, uh, I, w- I was...
2: Yeah, I was the... I was the person in the Rubettes who was miming is who I was because I was always the the weakest link in the chain musically Um, because I'm not a good musician I'm an enthusiastic musician but I'm not good but what I've done is I've surrounded myself by other people who are good and I've given the impression that I'm keeping up with them whereas actually what my main talent is is saying to everyone look let's do a gig, let's hire a PA, let's get a church hall, let's do that and I mean I mean, for example, in the case of the Dodgers, the first time we played, um, the two other people I was playing with at that point, they were both really good musicians, and, they, and I said, fine, we, we've got five songs, we, we're a band, we can do a gig, and they said, no, 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 we've got to rehearse, we've got to practice, and my whole thing was, no, you haven't got to practice, you've got five songs, that's a set, if you, you know, put a couple of middle eights in, and it'll be fine, and so it's, my whole thing has always been just getting people on stage, and then once they're on stage, they all do the, the hard work, and I do the showing up, particularly now since I play the double bass, because anyone who plays the bass knows, you can miss a note on a double bass, by quite a long way and nobody Uh, notices. notices. (laughs) Because double bass, particularly slap bass, has one sound that (laughs) is... Okay, so you go <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's it. Yeah. You know, you stand on stage so you could literally stand on stage with a double. you could be bass. thinking
0: about something else. Yeah, you go. Yeah, you're reading a what book. note's that? I don't know. Yeah. B flat? Pro- probably yeah. close enough. You yeah. know. So but every band has somebody, has one member who goes, Let's go and do this. Well, let's try this. And they're usually the least popular member. Because the Thank bands you, don't a- I don't mean <laughs> No bands don't like being don't like having a leader
2: no I'm not I'm, I'm absolutely not a leader I said I am a bassist and I, I mean at the beginning I thought that you know I want to be Stephen Fellows out of the Concert Angels or I want to be Tom Verlaine or I want to be you know I want to be the front man and then I sort of realised later on that I didn't want to do that what I wanted to do was play bass and stand at the back but in terms of just getting us you know get on stage that is the thing I like I like doing I don't like I, I was never I was never good at being a front man Firstly, because I'm, I'm not i mean, I'm mean, not good enough to do it. If you're going to be a front man and stand up and sing and play, you actually have to be able to play the right notes. You know, we played this gig at the Moonlight with um, Paint, who were, uh, I think they, had, they were a version of Wayne County and the Electric Chairs. They'd kind of come off... Oh, well, there we are. so the, So so here are some people that we played with so that uh, Tracy Thorne used to be in a band called Sternbops and the very first proper gig the Basics ever played was at the, the St. Albans Civic Hall this is terribly sorry. I remember every venue I can even tell you the set list but I won't the St. Albans <laughs> Civic Hall and Tr- Tracy Thorne was in Bops. Wayne County and Electric Chairs they had turned into a band called Paint and we played with them at the Moonlight and that's Julian Clary and I think that Hopeless who was this band that I was in in Manchester supported Julian Clary when he was uh, the Joan Collins fan club so you know it, 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 and Hopeless particularly that was that started out as, as a you know as a, a sort of bad joke it was there was a there was a gig advertised at Manchester and it was like a talent competition and I said to this guy Kevin I said do you want to put a band in for this talent competition and he said no I said there's 25 pounds expenses he went yep fine <laughs> so that was how Herpes 100 started and then Herpes 100 turned into <laughs> Hopeless which which in a joke that nobody other than Kevin got he said Hopeless would be Funnier if we left the e off, so they were called Hopless, like we couldn't spell. But then everyone just thought we were called Hopless, which was a stupid <laughs> name. And then after that, it was you know, then there was Russians Eat Bambi, which was a headline from a newspaper, which I still think was the best the best band name. You know, we weren't. Here. And then the trumpeting of Mighty Jungle Beasts, um, which is which happened because Phil Gladwin, who was our bassist, was playing pinball in the in the student union one day, and he was trying to describe for me the almost. Orgasmic joy of hitting a high score on this pinball machine, and he said, "And when you get three thousand points, the machine erupts with the trumpeting of mighty jungle beasts." Right. I said, that's a band. That's great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what kind of bands were you were you trying to sound like? I mean, the, you talk about oh, the Angels, talk about the yachts. I think yeah, one well, one yachts, certain groups you were really obsessed with, weren't they? Yeah, well, yachts I was really obsessed with. Does anybody remember yachts? Yeah.
2: yeah. Okay, so they, just brilliantly, yachts have just put out um, a, a box set um, of of their of their stuff the two albums and the single stuff and it's really really good so I was a huge Yachts fan I bought suffice to say and you know all the singles and <laughs> albums and I would go and see them play at places like the Hope and Anchor and I thought they were just the coolest thing because they had this sort of snappy pop sensibility and they were really funny and they were really sort of talented musicians and so when, when I was in the Basics Simon Booth, who was the guitarist, was really into The Clash, and he wanted us to sound like The Clash and Gang of Four, and I wanted us to sound like Yachts and the Rubettes, and then <laughs> later on, a little bit like the Compensate Angels. And I used to call Booth Strummer as a joke. So he, as a joke, used to call me Henry, because the, the leader of, the, of, of Yachts was Henry Priestman. And then when I went to Manchester, in the first week that I was there, somebody overheard Simon Booth calling me Henry and that stuck. So all the years I was in Manchester, I was, I was Henry. And in fact, to anybody who I was in Manchester with, they still call me Henry to this day. So the bottlers all still refer to me as Henry. In fact, there's TV interviews when the bottlers, who we were a skiffle band, started getting quite big. We were, we were the premier UK skiffle band at that was a very small pond, very big fish. And I was Henry for years. <laughs> because of Henry Priestman. I stole his own. And, funnily enough, he returned the favour because this, we just made the, the, the new Dodge Brothers album, which we've just finished. Look, there it is. See, it exists. I'm even wearing that. On the last track on that album, Henry Priestman plays the organ. And we've never met. We've literally never met. He got in touch and he said... Um, I'm doing this uh, I'm doing a a, a new album and I'm doing a version of a yacht single I know you love would you like to play bass on it and I said sure but I can't get up to where you are because I live down in the south so he said okay well we did it via remote control I played it in the studio and we sent him up the tape and then that album came out and then when we were recording the new Dodge Brothers album the drive train album I said I want all these organs on the last track so he did them so we've both played on each other's albums and we've never met and he's going to do a gig in London in November and I'm going to play at it, but I'm going to meet him on stage for the first for the first time. time.
1: And then he sent me this note. He said, "What happens if we hate each other?" Yeah. <laughs> there's a there's yeah. a, a major turning point in the in in the book where you you become a kind of one man act. in that called? Henry One Hundred. Henry One Hundred. Oh, who is a sort of uh, uh, Trotskyite, uh, angry, bullshy kind of uh, political comed- stand-up comedian, stand up comedian. Yeah, it was something involving, no, this, and it involves blood capsules. The act. Yeah.
2: It well, that's, that, that was hopeless. So after that was the, the hopeless, yeah. No, no, but so, so they, they do feed into each other. Yeah. There was the Herpes 100 gig, which happened so that Kevin and I could get 25 pounds. Is everybody keeping up with all this? Yeah. <laughs> there will be questions at the end, okay? Then there was Hopeless, and Hopeless basically existed because Kevin thought it would be funny to do Seasons... There was a Seasons in the Sun gag, which was that we stood in front of the audience, and it, it, he, Kevin was this really very imposing figure, and we sang Seasons in the Sun by Terry Jacks, but <laughs> the gag was that Kevin had been to this uh, joke shop and had got blood capsules and you chewed blood capsules and then when it goes you know, hello Papa, papa it's hard to die, suddenly we would hemorrhage all over the front row. Well we thought it was hilariously funny and the first gig we ever did, people ran screaming away from it so it became very successful. Then that is Henry 100 because I had decided that what I really needed to do was to shed all the other band members and reinvent myself as a stand-up comic and I Thought that the way that you would do stand up musical comedy is that you had to have one gag, and my one gag was this I'm dressed like a member of Shiwadi Wadi, but I was singing songs about uh, Communist Party Manifesto and agrarian reform. See, yeah. even now it's not that funny. <laughs> <Yeah>. But how <laughs> did that go down? It went down really badly. <laughs> it went, I did the first couple of gigs I did in Manchester to a home crowd because we were all very sort of you know, the R C P and R C G and you know, fight this, fight that. And we were all very, very sort of staunch lefties. So I was when I was playing to a home audience, they all thought it was hilariously funny. And then the first I, then I thought, oh this I've got this I've got this licked. This is a really good act. Because I had originally intended to go on stage wearing those clothes and just sing seven verses of the Internationale. <laughs> you know, like a kind of Andy Kaufman thing. But I know I'd never had the guts to do it. And I then then the first proper gig I had to people I didn't know was in Hull. And I got canned off stage really violently in Hull. <laughs> and, th- and then I Seriously? just
1: got- <laughs> Yeah,
2: but, I mean, they were right. I mean, I wasn't... No, never <laughs> But I remember I had this kind of Pauline moment when I was standing there with that guitar. That, interestingly enough, that's an Epiphone that was, I was sold by a guy in Manchester University who told me that it was one of the Epiphones that had been made by Gibson. He was lying, but I liked the look of it because Gibson did make Epiphones for a while. That's by the by... It's it also it's got a floating bridge. It couldn't could never keep it in tune. It was a very nice cherry red, but the machine heads were terrible. So I changed them, and I changed one of the pickups. Again, not important to you, but important to me. <laughs> My brother now has that guitar. And I was standing on stage, and I saw this literally this full like pint glass up in the air like at the top of its arc and I had one of those do I stay or do I go do I run away or do I just stand here and take it and I stood there and it just went and I got just completely from head to foot covered but I thought okay that's it it can never get any worse than this and as a result of that I haven't ever been scared of being on stage because, right. you, because if you're on your own getting I mean I hope it was lager, but I don't know what was yeah. in that. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, whole, know, you know, the whole the whole thing about it is you know if you get hit by one of those things at a festival it is yeah, lager. Yeah. It might yeah. just have been through somebody before. Yeah. But you know <laughs>
0: but after that everything else was was gonna be fine. So seriously it's all a kind of exercise in getting rid of any fear, isn't it? Because yeah see, this book is full of stories about I went on stage ill prepared by conventional standards oh, yes. to do whatever it was, yeah, and I survived.
2: Yeah, it, I mean, that really is it. It starts with um, uh, with this thing with, with the harmonica and the chromatic harmonica. I was told that the, the best instrument you can play is a harmonica because if you play a harmonica, there are no wrong notes on it. Does anybody play a harmonica? Okay, well, believe me, the harmonica is so easy. For every key that a song is in, there is a different harmonica, right? So if a key is in... If a song is in C... You either get a C harmonica or you get the, the counterpoint when you play it across. If you blow a harmonica, it'll play you the major. If you suck it, it'll play you the blues scale, the diatonic blues scale. So D plays A and even, So anyway, it's, it, it, it's just the right harmonica. And once you've got the right harmonica, you cannot play the wrong note. It is actually impossible. And then we were doing a thing for Radio 5, and they were going to do a concert of uh, film music and Robert Ziegler who's a brilliant conductor who's worked with Johnny Greenwood and has conducted scores for Paul Thomas Anderson he was conducting the the orchestra and they were choosing film themes and um somebody said Midnight Cowboy and somebody said well we don't have a harmonica player and I went I can do it and so they said okay fine and it wasn't until after I'd said it that I realised that it's not played on a harmonica it's played on a chromatic harmonica a harmonica has only the right notes a chromatic harmonica is twice the size and has all the notes including all the wrong notes laughter yeah. And the gig was like two weeks away and it was live on national radio with the BBC Philharmonic Orchestra (laughs) on an instrument that I couldn't play. And so I figured... How hard can it be? And so, from a pretty much standing start, I, learnt, I bought and learned to play the chromatic, and I was terrible at it until the time that we got to the to the actual performance. I mean, some of you may have heard it, it is on YouTube; it does exist. When, it, when the one time that I got it right was the time that we did it live, and I got away with it by the skin of my teeth, and it was astonishing. And a sensible person would have gone, "Okay, that's amazing. I got away with that. Don't ever do that again." But what actually happened was, I thought, "I got away with that. How hard?" Can it be and the next time Robert Ziegler said to me do you want to play the harmonica at the Royal Festival Hall with Radio 3 playing the theme from Touche Pio Grisby I went sure how hard can it be and that's what I begin with at the book standing up in front of the Royal Festival Hall completely packed with this massive orchestra playing the opening you know section of a thing which has now got this complicated harmonica piece that I am meant to play and it's like a dream but except it's not I, it happened it really genuinely happened and I got away with it. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but it was close enough. And uh, there you go. <laughs> so, what's compelling you to do that? Just the the challenge. I I refuse to be defeated by musical instruments. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's one way of looking at it. That's it's interesting. It's a very interesting perspective. Just, yeah. You know, there is a, people. You get taught that you you need to know how to play something, but I mean, I do think that the great joy of being in a band is just playing. It's it's the the fact of being in a band is brilliant. I love it. I love playing music with people that's one of my favorite things ever and and I, and if there's any sort of message if there's any sort of uh, underlying ethos behind the book quite apart from the fact that there's no such thing as a cheap laugh it is do not be afraid of musical instruments because you know pick them up have a go it was either john lennon or paul mccartney i can't remember which one said i'm not a brilliant musician but if you put me in a room with a euphonium and give me half an hour i will get you a tune out of it so i have on that principle played you know guitar bass, um, harmonica, chromatic harmonica, theremin, really badly, but I've, I played bagpipes on the television, and I got away with it. I can play one tune on the bagpipes, which is the theme from Local Hero, and I drove the family nuts for the week beforehand doing it, but if you give me a musical
1: instrument, I will get you a tune out of it. But what things, from all that stagecraft and all that experience, what things have you have you learned? What are the most valuable things you've learned, though? That there, there really is for
2: me no greater joy than playing music and I can't stand not doing it and I meet I've met up having written the book which is kind of like a you know a memoir of the bands that I was in And I mean we ended up doing fairly professional stuff we ended up being Danny Baker's house band on the TV show uh, Danny Baker after all which happened because Danny one day said I'm doing a TV show I went oh that's great he said do you want to be the house band I went sure <laughs> And then that was it. The next thing, I was the musical director of this, you know, proper BB, that's your licence fee. You know, (laughs) despite the fact that I can't read music and I can't direct. um, But I really love playing music and I really love being surrounded by other people who can do it better. And... And, you know, sometimes people say, well, you know, I can't play an instrument. Yes, you can. Anyone can play an instrument if you just want to be adequate, if you just want to join in, if you just want to sing along, you just want to play along. We spend a lot of time listening to music but playing it is a, is something different. And I've met a lot of people who I've played with in bands who then have stopped playing. And I don't know how that works. Because for me, if I stopped playing, I wouldn't be able to do the other things. So I'm still like I was in a school band now. And I'm in my mid-50s. I still I still do that all the time because it's like being interested in football or being interested in chess or being interested in cooking or wine or whatever. That's what I do to make me happy, and
1: it never fails. And the band, the band that you were on the Danny Baker show with, the, the Bottlers, Ballers. was a major change into into you know rockabilly yeah. and skiffle and uh, yeah, the skiffle. You know, so what 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 made you sort of abandon all that kind of rock and roll stuff and, and, and get on the, on the skiffle bandwagon? I, I wanted to play. I wanted to play music that people actually liked listening
2: to. And we were up in uh, Edinburgh doing a show about Joe Hill, you know, Joe Hill and the Wobblies and, yeah. and, and all that stuff. And I was the musical director of the, of the production, astonishingly. And then um, in this picture, you can see that's Alison Armstrong Lee, from, uh, Queen of the Washboard from Belfast in Manchester. That's Matt O'Casey, who is a really, really brilliant guitarist. And that guitar that he's holding was played by B.B. King. That's Ollie Fox, who is now a really very well-respected... Uh, theatrical uh, musical arranger and musical director and composer and then me holding a bass that we bought that morning as far as i know and i don't know how to play it yet (laughs) but i look like i do and so we we were we were busking in edinburgh and originally I, i was the guitar i was a guitarist but i was very cack handed and i used to break all the strings and no one could hear what i was doing and then some we saw a rockabilly band busking in the streets, and and they look brilliant, because this guy had a double bass, and I just thought, okay, that's what we need. What we need is a double bass. When you play a double bass in the street, people can't really hear it anyway. They're just impressed that you... It looks fantastic. Yeah, it's it.
1: People spin it. it You run up the side of it, and all that sort of
2: (laughs) stuff, which we we did, you know. Long before I could play it, I could do all those other things. Climb on top of it, yeah. And And then I... Because my, you know, so my dad was really interested in Jelly Roll Morton and old jazz and barrelhouse blues and that kind of stuff, and I, you know, he'd grown up putting up with my Rubettes records and Clash records and Concert Angels records and then somehow we kind of came together in the middle with jug band and string band and skiffle because it's like early rock and roll I used to really really love rock and roll and rockabilly and I used to like the the simplicity of it and you follow that back it comes back to skiffle all British as as Billy Bragg who I think you're going to be speaking to quite soon and has written this brilliant book about the history of skiffle. Skiffle is the origin of rock and roll and the origin of punk and the whole ethos of skiffle which comes out of jug band and you know uh, spasm bands in America was. Just grab anything and make a noise with it, and I really loved that. Particularly if, like me, you're not a very good musician, but you are enthusiastic. It's it's the perfect it's the perfect thing. But it's also not amplified, is it? Well, no. If you play on the streets, it's completely unamplified. Right. It was really lovely to have to, to stop lugging stuff around. And in fact, we played a gig with Jonathan Richmond. I was going to say, yeah, go on. No, I mean, I was a huge huge Jonathan Richmond fan, and we were busking in the street in Manchester one day, and I was. Looking out of the crowd as you do. And I thought, God, there's a guy there who looks just like Jonathan Richmond, which was because it was Jonathan (laughs) Richmond. And then he said, he came up at the end of the gig and he said, he said, oh, he said, it was great. You know, he said, he he said, do you want to play with me? And I thought he was saying it in a cute Jonathan Richmond way, because he made a record called do you, I'm Jonathan Richmond, I've come out to play, you know. And I went, yeah, sure. And he went, oh, great, tonight, just turn up and do it. And So we ended up supporting him uh, in Manchester. And the thing that he had a rule, which was if you can't carry it, you can't play it. So that then became the sort of ethos you can only, ca- you can only play stuff that you can carry. However, yesterday in the Dodge Brothers, we played our first gig in which our drummer, who actually was a washboard player and was only allowed to play a snare drum, demonstrated that he can actually now carry an entire drum kit, which is kind of contrary to the ethos. Right. But, you know, if you can carry it, you can
0: play it. So tell us about that, a bit more about when you were musical director on Danny's show, because okay. the idea on, on Danny's show was that you'd get name pop stars yeah. would turn up and you'd have to back them. But they and they all had to play a Beatles song.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you usually a Beatles song and then one of their own, I think. So that, we can see, that's a picture of Alison Moyer. He was fantastic.
2: And that's me with the double bass. That's the, the second... No, that's the first... No, that's the third double bass. I've broken two by that point. <laughs> that one I've now broken as well. So I've broken three maybe four double bases altogether, and that's Matt behind so basically Danny had this um, really really I thought brilliant late night uh, chat show on BBC One called Danny Baker After All and it was late night and it was kind of had a bit of a Letterman vibe to it but it was very much Danny's creation because as you know you've, you've all worked with Danny He's, he's amazing, he's just like he's, he's the most knowledgeable most witty, most, you know, he can, he can fill a room with stories and he's just such a sharp guy and I was doing the radio show on Radio 5 and he and I kind of sort of bonded the first time we met was in a radio studio, and we would had a stand-up row about John Hughes or something, and that kind of that had set set the die. And then he said, he just said, I'm doing this, I'm doing this some um, television program. He said, and he'd seen the Bottlers because we'd played at a party uh, in a pub somewhere, and he'd been along and he'd seen us, and he wanted a house band, and and he just he literally said. Can you can you be the house band? And I went, yeah, sure, be fine. How hard can it be? And then he said, Can you write me a theme tune? And I went, yeah, sure. How hard can it be? And so I wrote the theme tune. And then by the time I'd finished writing the theme tune, that was it. We had the gig. And so the, the deal was that every week you had a diff So we had Alison Moyet and Nancy Griffith and Amy Mann and Nick Haywood and Lloyd Cole and Squeeze. I mean, you know, Suggs. Suggs yeah. I mean, you know, really, really good acts. And the, the deal was that they would play one song of their own choosing and then they had to do one Beatles song. And I said to Danny, why do you want them to do one Beatles song? And Danny, in a very Danny way, said, because it's what I want. Well yeah. went, OK, fine, that's, that's great, which I've only just realised now is a gag. Why? was what I want. I, all these years later, I've only just realised he was making a gag. It wasn't until I said it out loud that I just realised it was a gag. Damn! I didn't even laugh at it when he said it. Oh, I feel really stupid now. OK, um... <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, so. But the thing is that the rest of the bottlers were brilliant musicians.
1: I mean, really brilliant musicians. How did you feel when the check arrived for that signature? Oh, it was amazing because, isn't it? It was it was large, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I, I wrote. I and you wrote, knocked this off overnight, didn't you?
2: Yeah, I not, yeah, But that you make that sound like it's more impressive than it is. Writing a theme tune, it's it's not that hard. He. Um, I, was, I, well, I had a guitar and a couple of tape recorders and I, he, he said that he wanted a swagger to it and I said, okay, well you mean like you want something like the theme from Starsky and Hutch and he went, yeah, yeah, yeah so I went home and I tried to play something that sounded like the theme from Starsky and Hutch on the guitar, which I couldn't play, and so I played it wrong and it came out as something else. And then I, I, played, I got some like, some you know cardboard boxes and recorded some drums, and then I got a guitar and slowed it down to make a bass. And I made this thing that sounded swaggery, and Danny liked it, and that was it. The whole thing must have taken you know, a couple of hours, tops, including a bath in the middle after I'd written <laughs> after, Because I was so pleased with how well it was going. <laughs> and, uh, and then somebody said something. Somebody said, you know, can we buy the rights? And I said, no, I want to retain the rights to it. I don't know why I said that. And then I got this royalty check for, for, for writing the thing. And it was like an eye-watering amount of money. Oh, you're going to have to tell us how much. Well, I think it, it must have been... Because what happened was... Um, I got the cheque and Linda, my wife, said, OK, you have to buy something with that money that will remind you of this moment because you've literally just been paid for professionally writing a piece of music that's going to be on the telly. And I went to Hank's Guitars in Denmark Street and I bought a Gretsch White Falcon, a second-hand Gretsch White Falcon. So it must have been 1,200 quid. Wow. Yeah, I mean, literally, wow, for two hours' work. Yeah, was, I mean, Is that it per was play? an intense two hours. Is, it Is that per play? No, 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 that was for writing the whole right, thing. Yeah, right, that, that's right. it. That was, the, that was the. Then that then covered the. But then, then I got residuals. I got residuals for all the interstitial music that we did. Um, so whenever the thing would go out, because it went, went out on different channels, yeah, I suppose, and you write these little bits of music to go between one scene and another. And we were doing what Danny did a series called um, uh, uh, Danny Baker's TV Heroes, and he did a, he did one about Bob Harris, you know, who presented Whistle Test, and he wanted to do a gag, which was that there was three bands finishing their prog rock song, and they go, Da-da! and then the camera would pan over to. Whispering Bob, who'd go nice, yeah. you know, or <laughs> mm, or mel, and then the third, the last one he wanted was it would be him sitting in in Bob's chair, and he was doing a piece about how brilliant Bob Harris was, and so for the last one he needed three seconds of a band that looked like a seventies band playing num, and then it would come over. So that was the bottlers. We dressed up in loon pants and things, and and we played. D-A-E, which are the open strings on a bass because Al, the washboard player, played the bass, which she can't play. So he played these three chords. And when we'd finished... The the guy who was looking after the the the, the, the money said, um, "What's the song called?" And I said, "Well, it's not a song; it's some chords." And he said, "Yeah, but no, but you have to tell me what the song's called." And I said, "It's not a song; it's literally D A E. That's it's not, that's all it is." And he said, "But I need to fill it in for the PRS form so that you can get paid the royal." And I said, "But what? You know?" He said, "If I, if it's got a name." it can uh, you can get royalties for it so steve the drummer went right it's called i've got a zeppelin in my trousers <laughs> and and, and I wrote it, and I've got a and royalty check for that money. For <laughs> yeah, I've literally got a royalty yeah, check that yeah. says that that was what it's for, for yeah. writing I've Got a Zeppelin in My Trousers.
1: <laughs> well, the last instalment of the book is a group called the Dodge Brothers, which is still going, of course. Yes, yes. And uh, the, the, the first album that you produced has this wonderful thing at the bottom, which seems to sum up in three words the essence of the music you're trying to play. It just says, death, booze and heartbreak, ride every trail, which is superb. I mean, that's kind of the, the ethos.
2: We're really lucky. I mean, that brilliant album. Album cover design is done by a guy called Jules Baum and Jules is a really fabulous designer if any of you are sort of interested in it I mean like he worked with The Clash and he worked with Imelda May and he worked with he's done, he's done some really sort of very very big stuff but luckily he's a friend and he liked the Dodge Brothers so it was it was him who came up with that and the, the, the sort of slogans and so we, we, we always knew that whether anyone liked the records or not they were going to have the best looking covers around because Jules had done all these designs for us but Death Boo's and heartbreak, that was it. It was. We wanted to do songs that were like, you know, they sound like they're old, 30s, 40s, that kind of blues stuff. And the second album we recorded, we went to Sun Studio in Memphis to do it. And we recorded it exactly as they would have done in 1954. We did it all on open microphones with no headphones and no overdubs. And we recorded it over two nights on dead time. Um, and that
1: was, you know, that was a r- real experience. I wasn't was, like, sure I was aware that was still open, actually. So you could, yeah, just, you could just book it and book it. Has it been changed? What are the days of, uh, yeah, the way it works is
2: it? it's a museum during the day, and then at the night, in the evening, they shut it off, and you can use it as a studio. I mean, it's just a room which has got the old equipment in it, but a lot of people come in and they bring in new equipment. So when we went there, we I said we had two nights because what happened was we went we went there on the tour, and and we re- and we really loved it. And then Linda, my wife, she said, you know, you should record the Dodge Brothers album there. And I said, well, we can't. You know, She said, you can, it's a studio, you can just book it like anything else, but it was, quite, it was very expensive. But it turned out that they quite liked what we were doing, and they liked that record, and they liked the idea that we wanted to do something that was, that was completely as they would have done it. And the guy who was um, engineering it was a guy called Matt Ross-Bang, who has now become a Grammy awards-winning producer, in, you know, Sam Phillips' kind of style of production. So he's become a really, really successful... I mean, he was successful then, but he's become very sort of famous... And he engineered the whole thing and he made it exactly like they would have done it. And it was really terrifying because where all these records come from that we love but I remember really clearly walking into the room the first time, and it's tiny. I mean, Sun Studio is smaller than this room we're in now, and then there's the control box, and there's no separation. Everything gets picked up with every microphone. But you walk in, and there's the piano, and there's over it there's a picture of, you know, there's Elvis, and there's Jerry Lee, and there's Carl Perkins, and there's all these pictures of all these legends. And then on the back wall, there's a picture of bloody Bono with his stupid hat on. (laughs) Because the U2 recorded there, but apparently they brought their own equipment in. So I said, "Can I take Bono off the wall?" And Matt went, "Yeah, you're fine."
0: So we did, and then after that, it was all fine. <laughs> I had to put him back at the end, but so principled. Have you got any musical ambitions? Unfulfilled.
2: To carry on, to I mean carry on being able to play. I mean that. So that picture that you put up there—that's us playing at Cropredy. I mean that's that was like a crowd of about twenty thousand people which is astonishing because, you know, I I never thought, you know, as I said when I was writing the book, how does it feel? I mean, I always wondered how it would feel to stand on stage with a really big PA in front of a really big audience and play tunes. And it's it's like that i mean it's it's uh, so all i all i want to do is to ca- is to be able to carry on doing it and all i'm really doing is doing what so many people did when they were in school was forming bands and playing gigs it's just i did the difference between me and some others i didn't stop i never stopped doing it i just carried on doing it and my ambition is to carry on doing it and you know, now we make records that I'm really proud of. I mean, I really... I do... I like Drive Train. I think it's a fabulous record, and I'm really thrilled with it. But I've still got the cassettes that I made of the spark plugs and the bands that I made. And if I played them to you, they would be terrible to you. But to me, they're like old friends. I still like the sound of them because I remember the joy I had doing them. So the, the only ambition I have is I'd love to be able to carry on doing it. It's really lovely now to be in a position when... You know we we do we do nice gigs and and and, um, and we get well looked after and you got proper PA systems and you get hotels with breakfast, you know which is a big thing because I'm in my 50s now I'm not I don't want to be out drinking or anything I'd like to have nice vegetarian breakfast in the morning is kind of important <laughs> and and then the other thing is that we play silent movies with Neil Brand um, uh, so Neil Brand is his pianist who did secrets uh, did sounds of cinema and um, he he accompanies silent movies and we. We started a few years ago accompanying silent movies with him. We just did one last night in Bridport, this brilliant Louise Brooks movie from 1927-1928 called Beggars of Life. And we play the film and we play along. We just improvise along with the movie and we've done Beggars of Life and we've done, there's a Russian film called Ghost That Never Returns and there's an old western called White Oak and there's a a slightly later western called hell's hinges and, and because i've always been interested in cinema the thing about playing along to you know to a film live is it's really something special and i never thought i'd get the chance to do that and you know we've played in tromso up in the arctic circle and we played in the bonus hippodrome which is one of the most sublime buildings you'll, you'll ever get to go in and um you know and 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 every now and then I meet people like Billy Bragg who are really kind and nice and say, Oh, I really like that. And I just think, like, I have no idea how I got here, but I love being here. You've got a very full life at the moment. Uh, are you calling me fat?
1: <laughs> no.
2: Um, no you, you do a lot of things, don't you? I, I, yes, I do. Um, I'm not sure that I do, I do more than anybody else, I just talk about it louder than everybody else, <laughs> I mean like, for example you do your job, right and then I'm sure you go home and do loads and loads of other things, but what you don't do is write a book about them, and what, what, what I've do, I'm just more vocal about it, I think, I mean I've I've got um, I've got, I'm, I'm really enthusiastic about things, right? I really love movies and I really love pop music and I really love my wife and I really love my family, and and I, you know, if I can just be awake a little bit more to find more space for everything, that will be fun. that's that's really that's what I want. I mean, I'm, I'm believe me, I am nothing but grateful for all of this. I cannot be, can't believe I'm sitting here talking to you two about that book.
0: I mean, it, it's quite astonishing. Well, to borrow the title of a movie, suitably, Lucky Man. Um, <laughs> the musical side of Mark's adventures is recorded in this this remarkable book. How does it feel? Which Mark will be happy to sign a copy for you. If anybody wants to buy one, uh, Martin from Waterstones is out there yes. afterwards. Uh, but please now say thank you to our guest, Mark Carne. Thank you. Thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by the Word.